I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, holiday stress might have an extra dimension this year, frustration and anger. What do we do or say when friends or family have different feelings about getting vaccinated? The science says that telling somebody what to do doesn't change their behavior. The science says providing science doesn't actually change anything. So what does work has to do with a trusting relationship. And later, the courage to follow one's convictions or the courage to act responsibly. To risk one's profession or livelihood, to say nothing of your physical safety over this principle of, you know, sort of being anti-vax is interesting because on the surface, it looks like courage, right? Hard conversations about vaccines and the nature of courage with psychologist Tanya Israel and stoic expert Ryan Holiday, all ahead on Life Examined. Over the past few weeks, I've noticed a recurring conversation in friends and family. As we start to make plans for Thanksgiving or beyond, there's this uncomfortable question of what to do with those who say they're not or don't want to get vaccinated. Will everyone still be invited to gather? Will it only create further divisions in families? Speaking personally, I can tell you that these issues and questions are certainly alive within my own extended family. And it's made me wonder... How do we begin to have real conversations about the vaccine that are centered on empathy and not anger? How do we get politics out of the way and instead try to really hear where someone is coming from? And don't get me wrong, this is hard. Because for so many of us, vaccines feel like a life or death question and elicit big questions and emotions around liberty and medical autonomy and faith in institutions. One person who is literally a professional at having hard conversations is Tanya Israel. She's a professor of counseling psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Well, Tanya Israel, it's a pleasure to have you back on Life Examined. Welcome. I'm so happy to be back. I wonder if we could just start from a place of, of, of mutual empathy and understanding that this is a very, very hard moment we're living in and the conversations around vaccines. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like this is maybe the hardest conversations happening within families, within friends. It might have been Trump a few years ago, but now mm-hmm. it's, it's the question of vaccination, in my opinion. Is, is that what you're seeing as well, a lot of stress around this? Absolutely. Um, As I'm talking with people about dialogue across uh, political disagreement, vaccines are so central to that right now. It seems to be the topic that's really hanging people up. What do you think is making this so hard to talk about? I mean, we've heard lots of facts and ideas, but what, what are you seeing? You know, I know people talk a lot about it's it's hard to do this because it's been so politicized. And and that's certainly part of the framework is that it has been politicized. So people's um, choices about vaccines tend to also be connected to other kinds of views and values that they have. And that gets really polarized, you know, when people see you as being like, oh, you're in that other camp then what happens is that people make lots of other assumptions. They say, oh, this person's not vaccinated. They're an anti-vaxxer then. Um, And then, well, then they must be, you know, watching Fox News and listening to these people. And, you know, that, that there's a whole slew of assumptions about somebody that come with their vaccination decisions. And it's interesting, too, to me, because what I've noticed is that there is some political through lines with the vaccination question, but then you also find people who would consider themselves to be on the far, far left who find themselves also uninterested in a vaccine. And so I I think it's almost hard to pigeonhole those that are making the decision not to take the vaccine. Oh, absolutely. I know people on the left who aren't vaccinated. I know people on the right who are very supportive of vaccines, that we are thinking about it in much too polarized a way uh, than, than is the reality of the situation. You know, I, I wanted to get this show out before the holidays, because what I'm hearing from friends, and I mean, even in my family, is people are going to try and gather, but is everyone going to be invited? Or how comfortable are people going to be together in one space, which I think is a very, you know, a very important subject and so hard for so many families. 
So as we get closer to the holidays here, are you anticipating that this is going to be a, a very trying one? I feel like there are two aspects of things uh, that that are in my realm of expertise that have to do with what to do about gathering for the holidays. Yeah. One aspect of that is, are people vaccinated? Are people comfortable um, with people who aren't vaccinated? Are people comfortable asking other people about their vaccination status? So, so where people are feeling like, I want to gather, but people's vaccination status is um, important in my decision about whether or not I want to do that. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of conversations around this or people struggling about whether or not or how to have conversations about this. The, the other aspect that we can talk about too is sort of what happens when you're actually gathering with people yeah. and there's some disagreements about things. But, but we can certainly talk first at least about that vaccine piece. Yeah, well, I, I think you hit on something there, which is, I, I know I feel this, sometimes I don't even want to ask about a vaccination status because if I do, it's just going to create a feeling of discomfort or anger or whatever other emotion comes along beside that. But do you think it's important for us to, to have that kind of conversation, even the very basic one? Are you vaccinated or not? So I think everybody's got to make their own decisions about what they're comfortable with. You know, some people might say, you know, whether or not people are vaccinated, I want to be outside or whether or not people are vaccinated, I want to wear masks if we're inside or, you know, people have lots of different decisions they're making. You know, it's like, okay, I'll hug people, but only if one of us is wearing a mask. You know, we're, we're all just trying to navigate and figure out our decisions uh, and and how to interact with people who might be making different decisions. And so there's sometimes a lot of uh, judgment that comes in with people because if we've made our decisions and when we feel like we've made good decisions based on our values, based on the information that we have, based on what we're prioritizing, then if somebody's making even a slightly different decision than we're making, it can feel like it threatens uh, or it's, it's in conflict with the decisions that we've made for ourselves. So I think that that's a piece of it, that we're all thinking really hard about this right now. We're just not all coming to the same conclusions. And it can be hard to uh, feel good about your own choices and somebody else's. Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's true. Let's talk a little bit about the psychology of having the hard conversation with somebody who's on the different end of the vaccination um, spectrum. You know, you're, you're trying to engage the person one way or another. Let's start with all the ways perhaps not to do it, which is probably <laughs> what most of us do. Uh, how should we not do this? Let's start there. So I will tell you uh, what the science says. The science says that... Uh, Telling somebody what to do doesn't change their behavior. Uh, the science says providing science doesn't actually change anything. So, so sharing research um, studies um, don't don't do anything if it's outside of the context of a trusting and caring and relationship. So, so what does work well can i shift to what does work of course yeah, <laughs> so, let's go there okay what does work has to do with a trusting relationship so interestingly the research says you know people are even only going to listen to their healthcare providers if they trust them if that's a trusting relationship but even better than healthcare providers are actually friends and family um, that's who we're more likely to pay attention to and listen to and some of that is because of the relationships that we have so having a relationship warmth trust caring demonstrating that we care about somebody that's really important to them wanting to listen to us at all. Yeah, and, and it's a reminder that for so many folks, and it's understandable, there is such a, a, a loss of trust in institutions or providers of any kind. So in the end, it's, it's about who do you trust? And oftentimes that's a friend or a family member. Absolutely, absolutely. So what do you do, though, if you can't agree on facts or if, if you know, one person says this is objective science, the other says that's disputable science? That, I mean, you know, that seems like a very obvious place to go, but I'm hearing that doesn't work. 
So I always start with what's your goal in this conversation? And for some people, their goal is going to be to change somebody else's behavior. For some people, their goal is going to be um, to just understand where somebody else is coming from and be able to ask about, you know, what's, what's your vaccination status? How did you make that decision? And it turns out that for either of those goals, whether you're trying to convince somebody to do something or you just want to understand more about what's going on with them, the best things that we can do are to have a warm connection and to try to understand, to promote understanding. And the best way to do that is through listening. And, and it's the kind of listening where we, you know, when somebody's talking, instead of trying to think of the thing you're going to say to argue back against what they're sharing, is instead of that, you're going to just summarize back what they just said. And when we do that, first of all, that other person feels like we're listening and feels like we actually care what they have to say. And, and the other piece of that is we're actually forced to try to understand. If you're going to summarize something back, you really have to go, what are they saying? What are they telling me? And that kind of understanding can lead to deeper conversation so that we're not just sharing one little bit where somebody says, well, I read this study and somebody says, well, I'm, you know, not getting vaccinated or somebody says, I, you know, feel like we should all be vaccinated and we should have mandates. And that's just a little tip of what somebody might be thinking or feeling about something. And I'm always interested in What's, what more can I learn about why that person is thinking that way, why they're making the decisions that they're making? What's the meaning that this has for them? And that's just a more interesting conversation. It's also a conversation that's going to get us farther, either in terms of trying to come to some mutual agreement about the way we might behave together in terms of vaccines and masks and safety. Um, but also, if we do want to try to shift someone's um, behavior, then we're really going to have to understand where they're coming from to begin with. Yeah, another question might be something like, what are some of the experiences in your life that have led you to feeling this way or to making mm -hmm. this decision, right? I think it's that kind of ability to show a, a real genuine curiosity, which frankly, I don't see that happening around us. I don't even see that happening to me necessarily when I come across mm -hmm. people. So I think it's something we all have to reflect on a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, curiosity is one of the most valuable characteristics in having a conversation across any kind of disagreement. And, and that meaning piece is so important because we make meaning of our own behavior. So if somebody says, well, the reason that I got vaccinated is because I care about other people. I care about my, my elderly parents, or I care about my children, and I don't want them to get sick. I don't, you know, I, I that that's, that's what vaccination means to me. Well, and so if you aren't getting vaccinated, then you must not care. Then that's what that means to me because of what my own behavior means to me. But on the other side, somebody might say, you know what? I haven't gotten vaccinated. I feel like this is my own choice to make. I feel I really value autonomy. And, and so I don't think we should have mandates because I really think it's most important that we trust other people to make their own decisions. And so if you are pressuring me to get vaccinated or you are supporting vaccine mandates, then it means you don't trust me mm. and that you don't value autonomy. Um, and I'm going to think that that's, you know, what it's about for you because that's the meaning that I have. So it's not even the behavior or the opinions. It's the meaning behind those that tell us so much more. Mm. There's a short anecdote you shared when you wrote a piece um, in Medium about this, which just, just reflected the fact that people really aren't asking those questions. Can, can, you, can you tell us that story for just a moment? Oh, sure. I, was, uh, I, I ran into um, someone I know who, who hasn't been vaccinated, and I said to her, you know, I would love to 
Um, and she she was talking about how she's just hearing from so many people that she should get vaccinated and she's feeling like they are badgering her, like the tone of it mm. was so um, aggressive. And so I said, you know, I'd really love to hear more about um, about your thinking on it, but I, you know, I don't want to exhaust you. You're probably tired of talking about that. And she said, oh no, nobody's asking. Mm. And... It just struck me so much that people are just telling her what to do, telling her what to do, telling her what to do. And no one's saying, tell me about why you are doing what you're doing or why you haven't done what I think you should do. I want to circle back to something, which is this, this question about, about facts and how they seem to no longer matter as much as they used to, or what we think of as truth is disputable. I, I know this is such a big question, but... How do you think we got here and how do we navigate something like that? So facts are, it turns out, not the most useful thing in some circumstances. Mm. And part of the reason for that is not that, uh, that, that information is, isn't important, but it's just that what we pay attention to um, depends a lot on, on a cognitive bias. Uh, so confirmation bias is, is the thing that explains why it is that we are paying attention only to things that support what we already believe to be true and that we're ignoring or dismissing uh, information that, that conflicts with what we believe. And it turns out we're all doing that. And, and people seem to be able to recognize when other people do it, mm. <laughs> but not necessarily apply that to themselves and recognize how they're doing it. And what I would say about this is this isn't even about um, false information or fake news. This is about the fact that for the most part, we're each only looking at a sliver of things. We're each only looking at some of the information and that's the information that supports what we believe. And so it's not necessarily that somebody else says, well, that's you know not true, but that they've got a different sliver of information that they're paying attention to that supports what they believe. And I think that that limits all of us so much because if we actually want to resolve any of the challenges in our society, our communities, our families at the Thanksgiving dinner table, it's going to be really important for us to have an understanding of all of those different slices of information so that we can really try to think about how do we move forward with the broadest and deepest understanding that we have about where people are coming from. Yeah. And let's say you're able to kind of have one of these conversations open-mindedly, open-heartedly, in the spirit of curiosity and and you know, no behavior changes come about, but let's say there's a better understanding. Um, how, how in the case, let's say, of, of two people who ultimately may not feel comfortable interacting moving forward, how, how do you use language that says, you know, I value you, but I, I don't feel comfortable, you know, in a certain uh, situation with you or in a gathering? How can you make that sound kind of palatable? Sure. Well, I think that you demonstrated something really positive there, which was saying, I don't feel comfortable, you know, rather than saying, you're doing this wrong, or you need to do this, or, you know, it's not a judgment of saying, you know, I've made a decision that this is what I'm going to do, you know, and I, I recognize that you're going to do a different thing. Um, but here's how I've, you know, I'm choosing to operate here. And I, I think that's really the best thing we can do is to own it and to own it in a way that's not saying that we're evaluating somebody else's behavior. I wonder for you, I mean, you were so involved in conversations around political polarization and were leading workshops uh, and, and giving us lots of tools. Do you find that uh, the question of vaccine skepticism or, or not or getting it or not is, is as heated as those previous conversations more heated? What what do you think is happening? Wow. Uh, I, I feel like just about anything can become, can rise to that uh, level of heat these days. And so certainly the vaccine discussions, you know, it's, 
it has to do with safety and autonomy and uh, and illness and and but also things like you know um, are your kids going to go to school and and what's going to happen in your workplace and are you going to get fired and things that have to do with our livelihoods and the economy and and our day to day interactions with people and. I also think that people are a little exhausted right now. You know, we're exhausted by the pandemic. And so it it's getting hard to, um, I don't know, be able to sort of sustain our energy through conversations and through just not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing when, you know, boosters are going to be available or not knowing. It's, it's just a very difficult time. So I wanted to acknowledge that as the context for this particular issue um, that, that I think makes it uh, particularly hard. I think that's exactly it. There, it feels as if our own safety or the safety of our families are on the line, whether you're in one camp or the other, right? I mean, this is, it, it's on everyone's mind. And I think what, what comes with this is, and what I'm seeing around me in moments of myself, are feelings of deep frustration that can morph into anger. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I, I'm wondering, Tanya, what, what do you do with that anger, with that, th- that, that deep feeling of skepticism and unhappiness with people, because I find, I find it's toxic mm-hmm. and we pass it on to people. What, what, do you have any thoughts on, on where we place that kind of stuff? I find it so much easier to deal with other people when I understand them. Mm. And, and the anger sometimes seems to be um, toward not an actual person and really what they're thinking and feeling, but toward... Uh, these kinds of stereotypes that we have of of people and who we think they are and what we think they believe based on, you know, something they they share on Facebook or based on, you know, a hat that they wear or a slogan that they have on their bumper sticker or something that they say that, and we're not really going beyond that to understand the full person. And so I think our anger is... Uh, not necessarily directed at the, you know, at actual people in their full humanity. So the best thing we can probably do to reduce that anger is just to try to see people in their full humanity and try to understand them that way. Yeah, I think that's right. Looking for the nuance in the story. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is as of June 2021, about 14% of the U.S. population, these are adults, so they would definitely not get the vaccine. Is there any thought that at, at this point there are some who are just a lost cause in this conversation that you can you can be with them, you can empathize, but ultimately, you know, what's the point of trying to change behavior if that's the goal of your conversation? Oh, sure. I mean, some people don't wear seatbelts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> They've been around a long time. It's like people uh, and and okay, if we look at our behavior, there's all kinds of health behavior that we don't do. I mean, who in who in the listening audience is flossing every day? I mean, some of you are, but certainly not all of you. And then someone's going to say, but that's not the same thing. Flossing's not affecting other people. But even things that do affect other people, we're not always, um, we're not always adhering to, you know, health, um, even mandates sometimes. So, I always try to do this perspective taking thing where I really, really try to understand where somebody might be coming from that I might be able to connect with. So so let me give an example of this. People are having a lot of trouble, you know, understanding people who haven't gotten vaccinated who say, well, you know, my immune system is the best thing to take care of this, you know, and I'll do that. And then people say, oh, no, but how can you, you know, how can you not get vaccinated because so many people are dying and, you know, all of this. and and there's this interesting thing that happened, you know, when I was a kid, like we used to just go out and get dirty and get into things. And that's just what happened. And then there's a sort of generation after that, where parents were really protective of kids and didn't want them to, you know, get too get too messy and all of this. And, and then there was all this critique of that that said, no, if we're not exposing our kids to things, then then that's not good for their immune systems, that kids need to be exposed to things so that their immune systems can work. Okay, I thought about it and I was like, well, 
maybe that's sort of what people are saying about not getting vaccinated because um, our immune systems will then be stronger, you know, for that. And, and indeed, I read a study that said, you know, people who first got COVID and then got better and then got a vaccine were even better off than people who just got a vaccine without ever having gotten COVID. And I thought, all right, that's science too, you know, and it's, it's, just giving me a little bit of insight into where somebody might be coming from that's a different perspective than mine, but that there's something that I believe that I can make a connection to that. And that helps me not be so angry. That helps me um, to also think about how do you have a conversation with that person um, and and what kind of goal would you want to have in that conversation? Mm. But Tanya, it's just so much easier to be angry than look for nuance, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> that takes well, a lot yeah. of work. What you're talking about, I don't, you know, we got to be up for that. It, it's true, and you know, this piece about kind of how do we manage our emotions mm. um, is is challenging. There's the when yeah. we're faced with something, yeah, it it is easier sometimes to blow our top. Like people say, yes, I want to understand other people, but sometimes I just want to be able to express what I think without worrying about it. And so I always say, all right, well, you know, what's most important to you in this moment? And if the most important thing to you is to blow your top, and that's more important than the relationship that you have with somebody and then actually trying to um, affect their behavior, then go ahead and do it. But know that that's what you're doing. So I want us to be intentional about this. And if we want to do something different from that, then there are things that we can do. There are ways that we can try to understand a different perspective. There are ways that we can, you know, really listen to somebody to understand them. And we might not always choose that, but I think that we're most empowered when we are recognizing what our options are and what choices we're making within those. Hmm. Lastly, any final thoughts about um, language or words that can be helpful as we have conversations with people, um, phrases? I mean, does it make any difference to say, for example, get vaccinated rather than get your vaccine or giving people ownership of their experience? I mean, any, any tips when it comes to stuff like that? Well, I think, you know, there's some sort of public health messaging, you know, that that might go out there. Because I, I know I saw a lot of people posting like, I also don't always trust authority and I got vaccinated, you know, and right, I was like, I OK, that. you know, yeah. yeah, people are like trying to put a thing out there. But one of the things that I saw is people were putting that out there on social media. So this is not exactly about the words that we should use, but but where we should communicate about this. Because frankly, anything that we're putting out there on social media is not going to be particularly effective in terms of affecting people's behavior. And in fact, there's some evidence that when we argue back and forth with people on social media, it's more likely to push them farther away rather than bring them together. And so, so I would say, don't think so much about messaging. Think more about human connection. I've been speaking with Tanya Israel, professor of counseling psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Tanya, thank you for the uh, level-headed conversation today and for helping us deal with the, these hard conversations and our own thorny emotions. I uh, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. I appreciate having the conversation with you and for all the listeners i appreciate you uh tuning in and still to come vaccinated or unvaccinated who's the more courageous and how do we define courage we'll get some insight from stoic scholar ryan holiday that's all coming up on kcrw's life examined after this short break stay with us introducing the kcrw donation car designed to be recycled this first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Courage. There's probably a lot of ways to define it, and yet the essence of the word brings us to this notion of risking something for a person or for a greater ideal. And what's made this question of courage so complicated recently is that we often can't agree on what this greater ideal really is. 
In his latest book called Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave, author and Stoic philosopher Ryan Holiday says courage is the most necessary of all the virtues, but according to him, there's been a major lack of it going around. Holiday is the host of the podcast and web series The Daily Stoic, and the author of several books on Stoicism, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and Stillness is the Key. Ryan Holiday, welcome back to Life Examines. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk to me about courage. Why, why did it feel that this was the place to start for you? I know this is going to be a book one of four on different topics, but, but how does this fit into kind of some of the bigger ideas that you're interested in? Well, I'm always interested in timeless ideas that are also very timely. And I think we have seen in the, the last year and a half um, all the different forms of courage and lack thereof. So courage is this interesting thing where we sort of we all admire it. We sort of all know it when we see it. And yet we don't get to see it very often and we're dealing with the consequences of failures of courage from leadership, you know, from from our ordinary uh, citizens and neighbors. You know, um, cur- courage, I, I sort of see it as the willingness to risk something or someone for something else. And, and I think we are struggling uh, as a society, uh, politically, culturally, uh, professionally, to, to, to sort of take those risks to do what we know is right or what we know needs to be done. It's like we're all asking, well, why should I have to do anything? Or why mm. can't someone else take care of it? And courage to me is the ability to step up and say, as Hillel famously said, you know, sort of, if not me, then who? Mm. How does this question of courage fit into the, um, the realm of Stoics, which I know you study so closely? Yeah, so for the Stoics, there's four cardinal virtues. These are also the same virtues of Christianity as they go way back. Mm. Um, but for the Stoics, the, the four virtues are courage, temperance or self-discipline, uh, justice, and wisdom. And courage, is, what's interesting is how interrelated all these virtues are. But I think C.S. Lewis puts it well when he says that courage is all of the virtues at their testing point, mm. right? It's difficult to be temperate in a world of intemperance. It's difficult to pursue justice without courage, right? It's uh, truth is the scariest thing of all. So when we think about courage, it's not just like, oh, I'm running into a burning building or something. It's it's the courage to pursue this sort of path in life. So I see courage as the first, I don't want to say the most important, but it's it's the sort of the nece- the most necessary of all the virtues. And, and having courage means the ability to run up against fear, which is mm-hmm. something you write about in this book. How do you understand fear, define it, and, and how we should interact with it? Well, we, we have this idea that the Stoics are these sort of emotionless robots, that they just sort of never feel anything. And that's actually not it at all. Um, it's not that a Stoic doesn't feel fear. It's that a Stoic tries not to act on fear or out of fear. So when we think about courage, it's not that you're never scared, you're never afraid, you're not uh, aware of the risks. It's it's that you proceed despite those things. And in mm-hmm. fact, I would argue if you're sort of one of those totally fearless people that never worries about this or that, that, that is sort of delusional about the risks of a, of a given action or policy or you know choice, that's almost not courage. Because to me, courage is the... Uh, is proceeding despite the awareness of the danger. Yeah. Are there any great stories um, of the Stoics that deal with courage that you talk about at all in the book? Well, I try I try to take Stoic concepts and then illustrate them with stories uh, of all sort of genders and nationalities and yeah. eras to sort of bring them home to people. And so I was really fascinated with the journey of someone like Florence Nightingale. She gets this call at a very young age to, to, to sort of be of service. She's not quite sure what. And she, as she starts to gravitate towards this idea of nursing, she bumps into all this resistance from her family, from her friends, from society, as well as from her own fears of inadequacy or, you know, sort of an unconventional life. And so for the first like 16 years, she ignores this call 
And and finally, the sort of the voice bumps in again and says, are you going to let what other people think prevent you from being of service? And even, yes, still then, you know, she doesn't immediately do it. So I'm fascinated again by people who battle against this and eventually persevere. You know, we talk about the idea of the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. You know, one of the steps on the hero's journey is the refusal of the call. Mm-hmm. Um, so fear is a big part of this. Yeah, the the, the chapter on Florence Nightingale uh, was fascinating. And for some reason, you know, my mind has gone to some of the present day issues we've been dealing with, the Me Too movement, and how there have been a number of courageous women over the past few years that have kind of acted very similarly. Well, going back to the Stoics, um, one of the early Stoics, Musonius Rufus, is is one of the first sort of Western philosophers to advocate for the teaching of philosophy and virtue to both men and women. His point was that virtue has no gender. It's like, you don't care what gender a racehorse is. You just care if it can go fast. And so uh, one of the things I really did want to think about in the book is like, I wanted to dispute this notion that courage is like only what happens on the battlefield or it's mm. only, you know, about feats of strength. That That's certainly part of it. But moral courage requires just as much uh, uh, just as much of a battle with fear as 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 physical courage can. And so um there's to me, there's almost nothing. There's nothing gendered about courage, and there are plenty of courageous women and plenty of cowardly men, and and vice versa. And that we could all use a bit more courage in our lives. You also talk about folks like Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and a number of others. But I wonder if you could pick another one for us that maybe surprised you as you were writing about, or that perhaps really inspired you as you put the book together. There's a great there is a great story about Ulysses S. Grant that I love. He talks about sort of early on in his career. He's uh, it, this is early in the Civil War. He, he's sort of marching out. He's supposed to meet the enemy. And he's he says, like, if I was actually brave, I would have ran away. He was like, I was too scared to even run away. That's how scared I was. And, you know, the whole countryside is cleared out. It's supposed to be this horrible battle. And he gets to where the enemy was supposed to be. And he notices that the enemy isn't there. And he said, it changed me forever, realizing that they were just as scared as I was. And that by not running away, I actually won. Mm. And I think about that, you know, that, that again, these people we admire that have, you know, accomplished these incredible feats, um, they were scared just like we were. And they pushed through that. And that is what made them great. I think there's something really important about this idea, and you defined courage earlier as as having to risk something, right? That there's mm-hmm. something at stake w- when you take the courageous step. I, can you say a little bit more about that? Well, look, if it was guaranteed, if I told you, hey, you know, this show you're starting will absolutely succeed, or if right. I said this business you're starting, it's going to be a smash. Don't even worry about it. That would obviously be great. It just wouldn't, you can't describe it as courageous because- you you didn't brave anything. I mean, the idea of bravery is that you are braving the elements or the mm-hmm. odds or the opponent or whatever it is. Like if it was easy, everyone would do it and it wouldn't be that impressive. So it's it's good that it's hard, right? It's good that it's scary. It's You could say like, yes, it's it's forcing me to, to rise to the occasion, but, but you could take some solace in the fact that most people aren't going to do that or be able to do that. And so it's, it's making it rare, like from the rarity or the scarcity comes the value. Right, right. Interesting that you also um, added Peter Thiel to to your writing. Um, can, can you tell us about him and why why he's important? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated with Peter having written a book about uh, a particular sort of campaign of his uh, several years ago. Um, I, I'm just I, I I wanted to talk about different kinds of courage and that and to to say that you know even powerful people mm-hmm. feel afraid or incapable of doing things right and so i was fascinated by this uh sort of event in his life where basically people said there's nothing you can do about it it's impossible no one can solve this no one can address this and again you can disagree with what he ultimately did in his lawsuit against gawker and plenty of people do and i think we should feel comfortable challenging these things but but I think 
you'll hear this, whatever it is that you do, wherever you are, however powerful or powerless you are, people will tell you things can't be done, right? That they're impossible, that, that no individual can change or address them. And to me, uh, there's a question that Peter has asked, you know, uh, basically someone says to him, well, what would the world look like if everyone accepted that? And I think it's important to realize that progress depends on the unreasonable people who say, I'm going to try anyway. I'm going to push myself anyway. I'm, I believe that I am the exception to the rule. Mm. Keeping it kind of in the current landscape, you said as we began the interview, there's been some incredible breakdowns in courage over the last year or so. What were you referring to? Well, the the courage to make hard decisions, the courage to make unpopular decisions, um, the courage to uh, perhaps vote against one's party, uh, to cut one's own political throat over principle, let's say. Um, I think we are struggling as a society. Heroism is always rare, but I think we're struggling to even get people to do things in their long term, in the, the courage to, to think about their long term interests as opposed to short term expediency. So, you know, when you look at something like the pandemic, on the one hand, we have the immense courage of doctors and nurses and frontline workers and grocery store, uh, you know, food sh uh, uh, store stockers who, yeah. who showed up and, and did this thing under, you know, uh, immense risk to themselves for the good of, of everyone. And then I think you contrast that with just, you know, politicians who didn't want to tell the truth or politicians who, you know, didn't want to risk reelection, uh, you know, uh, negative consequences for their reelection. And, 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 you know, the reality is we're all suffering for those moments of cowardice. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, I know a lot of folks and perhaps yourself would point to maybe the, the most controversial topic right now, which is uh, vaccines mm -hmm. and those who are taking them and those who are not. And um, I, I welcome your thoughts because I know you've mentioned in other interviews that you've taken a very pro-vaccine stance and that it's cost you a, a number of, of listeners or subscribers or viewers yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, hey, everyone is sort of pro-vaccine and this is not a popular, you know, this is a very popular stance. But let, let's say you're a, you know, you're a public figure of some kind and, and let's say 30% of the population is vaccine hesitant or, or uh, resistant. I mean, very few people will willingly piss off 30% of their audience, mm -hmm. right? And so when you wonder why people aren't saying things or aren't putting themselves out there or sort of muted or trying to play it both ways, it's because they're afraid of the consequences. And I get it because I've experienced those consequences. But I'm actually more interested as far as vaccines go, as I'm fascinated by, you know, like a school teacher or a football coach or an athlete or a, a leader who is like willing to lose their job over a vaccine mandate because to me it brings up the tricky nature of courage right obviously to risk one's profession or livelihood to say nothing of your physical safety over this principle of you know sort of being anti-vax is interesting because on the surface it looks like courage right i wouldn't do you know what i mean like very few people would do that um and yet we kind of instinctively intuitively know there's something empty and false about this courage because what it's in pursuit of is wrong. There's a great quote from Lord Byron. He says, um, "'Tis the cause makes all that hallows or degrades courage in its fall." There were brave soldiers in the Confederacy, and there were brave soldiers for Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan, but, but we know there's something empty about that courage because the cause they fought for sort of fundamentally unjust or wrong. And so what's interesting about anti-vax is it's kind of this perverse courage. They're willing to risk a whole lot, but what is the principle that's at stake? Their ability to infect someone else with a deadly virus? I mean, it's insane. When you made the choice to kind of uh, talk about um, being pro-vaccine, um, did you kind of rely on any of the Stoics' wisdom or some of the things you write about? Yeah, I mean, look, as I as I think about it, um, I know that there is an element of stoicism that is really palatable to pretty much everyone. Mm. Right. Self-improvement, resiliency, productivity, empowerment, etc. 
Um, and I could just talk about those things and have a bigger audience. But that would, one, be a betrayal of the philosophy itself, because the philosophy is, is about more than those things. But it would also be, I think, a betrayal of my duty or obligation as a writer, as a person who loves this craft of writing and thinking. Um, you don't just get to say what people want to hear. You have to say what is true, what is important, what you think they need to hear, even if that comes at the expense of, you know, being for everyone. If if your audience is yeah. always agreeing with you, if you're only saying things that are popular and pleasant, well, you're probably not serving the audience and you're probably not being courageous uh, in, in either the pursuit of justice or even just the, the pursuit of wisdom or truth. You've written something kind of interesting on this, um, which is that Americans misinterpret liberty to mean not freedom from oppression, but freedom from responsibility. I feel like this ties exactly into what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece for The Economist about this idea from Viktor Frankl. He proposed coming out of the Holocaust that the Statue of Liberty needed to be uh, given a twin, uh, a statue of responsibility on the West Coast. Mm. And I, I love that because I think the pandemic has revealed that we don't exactly have a liberty problem. People are free to do a whole bunch of things in this country. What we're struggling with is a responsibility problem. Look, I would love for there not to be vaccine mandates. I'd love for there not to be mass mandates. Um, but the only reason we have those things is because not enough of the population is acting responsibly with the, the, the freedoms that you know, we would normally be granted. And so when we think about freedom, um, the, the American system was always, the, the legal freedom was always intended to be checked with private virtue, with a sense of responsibility, a sense of uh, obligation and duty to each other and to, to truth and to, uh, you know, the most vulnerable among us. I think we've, we've confused or lost sight of the fact that our freedoms are intertwined with each other. So your freedom to not take the virus seriously impedes my freedom to not get the virus, right? right? And so we have to think about what our responsibilities and obligations are to each other. And this often means sacrifice. And and that's just that's just part of life. Yeah. And I think maybe sometimes stoicism gets confused of, of you know, this idea of self-betterment. I need to do things for myself. I need to be courageous on my own. Gets confused um, with, I think, the greater notion here of, of a common good or acting uh, for the sake of a community. No? That's totally right. In, in meditations, Marcus Aurelius refers to the idea of the common good like 80 times, like almost more than any other concept. And, you know, he knew this from experience living in uh, through the Antonine Plague. And one of my favorite quotes from him, he talks about, you know, there's the pestilence that destroys your life and then the one that destroys your character. And I think the thing that makes you selfish or indifferent or unwilling to be responsible is almost a worse illness than, uh, than, than COVID. Where else do you see questions of courage right now bubbling up in American society? Has there been any other examples you've noticed? Well, look, it goes, it goes both directions in, in far as, as far as what we're calling like cancel culture, right? Mm. I think, um, obviously, People should not be intimidated uh, to, you know, and be not be afraid to say what they think it is, even if that thing might be unpopular or controversial or perhaps, you know, uh, transgressive at the time. Many of our greatest ideas, you look to go to the idea of the pandemic, like the guy who proposes germ theory that that illnesses are spread through germs, you know, was not received uh with with open arms at the time conversely you know he's he's seen as as incorrect and has to deal with that criticism so we we have to think uh we, we have to be willing to speak up even if those things are unpopular however we've also on the other side come to think that it's just courageous to say whatever pops into your head and never care about what other people think or other people's feelings so to me there's kind of a nice golden mean between these two themes, which is like, um, you're not afraid to say the truth, even if it will hurt people's feelings. At the same time, you t you care about other people's feelings. And, you know, 
being a jerk is not uh, or radical honesty is not really courage if you're just saying things because you have no no restraint. Do you feel optimistic uh, that America may kind of enter a, a new period, one slightly more um, cohesive or shared sense of values or the idea of working for a common good? There's a great quote from General Mattis where he says that cynicism is cowardice. And I, I think the flip side of that is that it takes courage to be hopeful, especially when uh, the world is dark or depressing or disappointing. And so um I think it's easy to see all the things that are wrong. Uh, it's easy to be resigned or frustrated or hopeless. I think um, I'd like to think I have the courage to believe that things can and will get better. And, you know, one of the characters that I uh, heroes that I talk about in the book is John Lewis. Mm. And you look at a guy who, you know, was beaten and arrested like 40 times in his life for insisting on the most basic of human rights and dignity. And if he could get through life, uh, if he could hold on to hope and optimism through all that, I, I, I find that we probably don't have much of an excuse ourselves. So I would like to think, and I am working on the courage to be hopeful. And I wanted to mention that oftentimes we like to think that, you know, within each of us, we can make these very giant, public, uh, courageous acts. But perhaps the more realistic way to do this is very small, courageous acts every day, almost like it's a practice, like it's a muscle that you build. I, I wonder if that's something you agree with. I mean, this is not a thing you just kind of suddenly do, but you practice at. I, I do think that it's it's about making courage a habit. It's about, you know, uh, speaking up when you have something you feel you can contribute. It means instead of despairing about climate change, you know, grabbing a trash bag and picking up litter by the side of the road. Right. It's about instead of uh, bemoaning the awful politicians that we have, it's the courage to run for school board or city councilor. Right. It's about thinking about the little differences that you can make and having the courage to, to, to focus on that instead of the sort of nihilistic despair of it's rigged, it's broken, it's impossible, it will never get better. I've been speaking with Ryan Holiday. His new book is Courage is Calling. Ryan, thanks again for joining us on Life Examined. Really appreciate it. It was an honor. Well, that's all the time we got for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can stream all our shows on the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And just so you know, every review you leave and rating you give us allows us to grow the show. So please take a moment to write. It means a lot to us. And thanks so much. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you next week.